0: Elden Ring is set purely in the lands between, but it is clear that the lore of the world expands far beyond this. The setting is full of many countries, many factions, groups and individuals with a huge array of motivations. In most Souls games our avatar comes to the world as an enigma, with very little backstory and it is up to us to fill in the blanks. But in my opinion Elden Ring does a far better job of putting some meat on the bones as some of the starting classes have surprisingly deep lore associated with them. Not only is this great for interesting backstories from a roleplaying perspective, but it can tell us more about the Tarnished and the world as a whole. By looking into each of these classes in depth, we can actually learn a surprising amount about the different cultures, society, countries, religion and crime that can serve as a bedrock for our greater understanding of the lore as a whole. So today I'm going to be doing as deep a dive as possible on each of the starting classes and I am certain there will be some things that you won't have considered. Before we get started guys, remember if you like Elden Ring lore, please consider subscribing to the channel as I primarily do Elden Ring lore and usually I do Elden Ring long form lore content. But with that being said, let us jump right into the first class. So the Confessor is a very interesting class and one of my favourites because of the implications it has for your character's backstory. Let us look at their iconic black armour set first, the chess piece of which reads the following. Worn by church confessors, the churches outside the lands between, dedicated to the teachings of the Two Fingers, send confessors out to follow the guidance of grace. The confessors are loyal servants to the Two Fingers, ready to hunt down and quietly dispose of their enemies. So obviously the first interesting bit of lore we get from this is that the Church of the Two Fingers exists outside of the Lands Between, meaning the faith of the Greater Will, the Erd Tree, and Marika persists outside, so it's just a really good bit of lore for understanding the scale of this faith and how important it is to the world at large, and it's not just isolated to the lands that we see in the Lands Between. Next up it tells us that this origin, the Confessor origin, is a member of the Church of the Two Fingers. Hence, they wield the finger seal and associated finger miracles. Yet, these confessors are no mere priests, but church enforcers, who hunt down enemies of the church, the hood description even making it clear that their black outfit is designed as such to blend into the darkness. They are assassins. To me, the symbols they wear upon their cloaks makes more sense in this way. A sword intertwined with two snakes. They are the blade of the Two Fingers. Additionally, we learn from the Duelist armor set that serpents are seen as traitors to the Erdtree, so one may interpret this symbol as the blade that hunts down traitors, symbolized by the snakes. You'll note that this symbol, the one on their cape, is also present on another artifact, the Crepus Vial. This is because the Order of Confessors are also known as the Assassins of the Round Table the Creepus vials being referred to as an artefact of the latter. These confessors don't just hunt down any blasphemers, no, these are assassins that were known to hunt down the Tarnished who strayed from Grace. As a confessor, you are a Tarnished hunter, hunting down other Tarnished who have strayed from the path of the Two Fingers, and we can first learn of this from one of the miracles that the confessor actually starts with, the Assassin's Approach which reads as follows. Incantation of the Two Fingers servants, who once served as the assassins of the Round Table Hold. The assassins were charged with eliminating Tarnished, who had strayed from Grace. So we can see the Confessors are an organization of assassins directly linked to Round Table Hold itself, who would hunt down Tarnished at the direction of the Two Fingers. We know these Tarnished employed silence as one of their main weapons, such as through their black outfits, and incantations like Assassin's Approach, and Darkness, the latter of which literally spreads a veil of darkness to confound their enemies. Thus, silence would become emblematic of these assassins, something we learn from the Creepus Vile, which reads, A ritual implement used by Table Hold assassins. There was a time when Tarnished, who had strayed from guidance, feared nothing more than utter silence. Now the character Crepus seems to be the Head Assassin, specifically named the Head Confessor, and that's something we learned from the Crepus Black Key crossbow. This title should eliminate any doubts about the Church Confessors being one and the same as the Round Table Assassins. And once again, if you look closely at this crossbow, you can see the Confessor symbol inlaid across it. That is what you are if you choose this origin. And interestingly, we meet one of these confessors in game, known as Riley the Idol, one of those we are sent to hunt down as a recusant, and you can draw your own conclusions as to why, given what we've explained and the nature of the recusants. Riley is wearing the confessor set, wields the black key crossbow, and even drops the creepus vial, confirming that he was at least at one stage a church confessor. Though his possession of the Scorpion Stinger and his proximity to the Shaded Castle might suggest another allegiance now. Ultimately, I find the Confessors to be a really interesting order. Assassins in all but name who would have cast a dark shadow over the Round Table Hold and committed some dark deeds. And that is a pretty loaded origin if you choose this class. And now let's move on to the next class, one of my favourites, Warrior. The Warriors are skilled swordsmen from a nomadic tribe that are the inheritors of bladecraft developed by the legendary Blind Swordsman. We know the Blind Swordsman was an incredibly influential character in regards to combat techniques given we learn the following from the Curved Sword Talisman which reads as follows. It is said the Blind Swordsman was the originator of this technique, the art of allowing one's opponent to strike so as to leave them vulnerable to a well-timed reply. And so with that in mind let us start by having a look at their armour set, which greatly implies this connection as it reads, Cowl of a nomadic warrior. The blue colour of its fabric symbolises brisk waters, as fluid and flowing as the sword in the hand of its wearer. Just as still waters turn foul, stagnation leads to decay. Warriors must remain ever drifting. The flowing technique described here is the one utilised by the famous Blind Swordsman in his fight against the Scarlet Rot, and he was taught this by the Blue Dancer, as the talisman of the same name reads, The Dancer in blue represents a fairy, who in legend bestowed a flowing sword upon a Blind Swordsman. Blade in hand, the swordsman sealed an ancient god, a god that was wrought itself. Now I talk about this more in my millennia lore video, but I believe the Blue Fairy to be Shifra River. Or a manifestation of this, based on the incredible Reddit post by Nameless Singer, which I'm crediting now on the screen, which I highly recommend you read in full detail. Long story short, Nameless Singer describes the fact that Shifra is Gaelic for fairy, and given the association with water, it 100% makes sense that the blue dancer in this talisman is actually a manifestation of Shifra River. So, a manifestation of this water spirit taught the blind swordsman the flowing techniques of water to combat the stagnation of the scarlet rot. For those unfamiliar, flowing water and stagnant water are powerful pieces of imagery in regards to the Shinto view of the cycle of life. Flowing water is the natural, pure state of things, and stagnant water is the corruption and stalling of the natural cycle of life and so it is fitting to have these symbolic illusions in this conflict, the flowing pureness of water and the stagnant stalling of the rot. The blind swordsman would use these flowing techniques to ward away the outer god of rot, which we learn from the Scorpion Stinger, with the Lake of Rot's map telling us more about the sealing of this god. It reads as follows. A great lake of standing water downstream of the Ansel River it is said the divine essence of an Outer God is sealed away in this land. So the combination of these items tells us that the Blind Swordsman, empowered by the Blue Fairy, once battled and sealed the Outer God of Rot, which no doubt led to the collapse of the Great Lords of Rot, as described by the Mushroom Crown. And it also explains why the Scarlet Rot in the Lake of Rot is so virulent, because the Outer God of Rot itself was sealed in these lands. And credit to Igor Engel for pointing out the lore of the Lake of Rot in my last millennia video. Thank you, Igor. So that's one hell of a legacy, and it doesn't stop there. Of course, the Blind Swordsman's duty would compel him to continue to track down manifestations of the Scarlet Rot, and the latest one was millennia. Yet, instead of striking down millennia he would become her swordmaster, something we learn of from the Prosthesis Air Talisman, which reads... Though born into the accursed rot, when the young girl encountered her mentor and his flowing blade, she gained wings of unparalleled strength. Indeed, we even see the two inspiring equipment on the talisman's engraving. With this knowledge, Melania's infamous waterfowl dance, a flowing water-based technique, makes more sense. It is obviously a technique of the blind swordsman taught to her. And perhaps he believed by teaching her these warding techniques, she'd helped keep the scarlet rot inside of her. But regardless what is clear is that he helped train the greatest swordsman of an era. Now that really is one hell of a legacy to be burdened with if you choose the warrior class. So given this history and the words used in the armor set of the warrior class it's pretty clear that this swordsman had a great effect on the development of this culture. Not only in their bladecraft but the wording of the armor suggests that it also talks about the way they are nomadic. They must always be moving, not only in combat, but in their life, hence they are a nomadic warrior. And if you look at the curved sword talisman, it looks as though the blind swordsman depicted in this talisman, you do indeed appear to be wearing the same outfit as him, leaving me to speculate that you are of the same tradition or tribe as the blind swordsman. One final speculation and observation of mine is the unusual white hair wig that appears to be popping up as part of the cowl. While it could just be part of padding or insulation, one can't help but see it reflects the hair displayed in the curved sword talisman. Perhaps it is one further homage to the blind swordsman, maybe a way of emulating his hair because no matter what hairstyle you have as a warrior class it will look like you have this white cropped hairstyle. But in summary, these warriors are those who have followed the teachings of the Blind Swordsman and that is a great character backstory for any roleplaying scenario. And now we move on to I'm sure what is many people's favourite class, the Samurai class. The Samurai is interesting from a lore perspective because they owe their lineage to the fascinating land of Reeds and can inform us about the greater world as a whole. Given their class name and armament, we can most likely presume the Land of Reeds to be loosely based on medieval Japan. Now, we learn of this interesting country and its current state from the armour description of the Samurai's Land of Reeds armour, which reads, The Land of Reeds has long been locked in a miserable civil war, during which time it has remained alienated from the cultures of its neighbours. Little wonder that the entire nation has succumbed to the blood-soaked madness. Or so it has said. I find this interesting because we have already likened this to Japan's medieval period, but there was a specific period in late medieval Japan that was defined by bloody civil conflict, the Sengoku era. For those familiar with Sekiro, you will know that this is also the backdrop to that game. Given from software's reference to this era before, one cannot help but assume we are meant to think of this period of great internal conflict. And we get a vision of a land completely enveloped by warfare and bloodshed, a land of warriors. Yet it is heavily implied that there is far more fueling this bloody conflict than mere political differences, especially if we consider the term blood-soaked madness that is used to describe this conflict. The specific word choice is interesting because it gives the impression of conflict that is fuelled by bloodthirst and sort of insanity that is gripping the nation as a whole. Indeed, the Reedlander-based appearance default flavor text also states that this region is a place where blood is a common sight. This focus on blood goes beyond being a byproduct of a conflict, especially if you consider the weapons favored by Reedlanders cause bleed primarily. It becomes even more interesting when you consider the other item that the samurai starts with the Red Thorn Round Shield. Now of course this should be readily apparent for not someone that's new to the game but someone who has played through the game once or twice as we know there are special red thorns in the game. The Briars of Sin and the Briars of Punishment. Both of these sorceries are linked to what we know to be the Blood Star. For example the Briars of Sin spell reads the following. An aberrant sorcery discovered by exiled criminals. The guilty their eyes gouged by thorns, lived in eternal darkness. There they discovered the Blood Star. The Blood Star is therefore a star which exists in a dark void that can only be accessed by those who have lost their sight permanently. This is a subject I have discussed in more details in my Fire Giants video, so I will link that video below if you're interested in a bit more context. But given the bloodthirsty nature of the land of Reed's denizens, Does the red thorn symbolism take on greater meaning? After all, these are the lands of Okina and his disciples, the white, armour-wearing Iniba. Okina is a legendary Reedlander swordsman who wields the rivers of blood, a sword that has tasted so much blood that it has become curse. Okina is the prime example of a swordsman who has fallen to this madness and has become a demon that thirsts only for blood. And as such, he would end up serving Moog, Lord of Blood, and his Formless Mother. Could it even be that the warriors of these lands specifically have weapons that cause bleed, on purpose, due to their belief in some form of deity or ideal? The potential links between the Blood Star and the Formless Mother are a cause for their own video. However, it does lead us to consider what is the reason for this almost unnatural bloodlust that has taken over an entire nation and why members of that society bear red thorns upon their shields, and why their weapons always cause bleed. Is this a set of ideals or beliefs that has led to this conflict in the first place? A belief that drives one towards greater bloodshed? Or is it instead just a parasite, feeding off this bloody civil war conflict and exacerbating it through its ideals? That is up to you, but it does give a nice little spin on the usual noble samurai trope that we get in video games. And now we're moving on to the next class, the Astrologer, an important one in the history of the Lands Between. The Astrologers have a fascinating history and impact upon the Lands Between, their work being directly connected to Glintstone's sorcerers and the Carrions themselves. We learn of the Astrologer's early history from the Sword of Night in Flame, a legendary sword now possessed by the Carrions, and its description reads as follows storied sword and treasure of Caria Manor, one of the legendary armaments. Astrologers who preceded the sorcerers established themselves in the mountaintops that nearly touched the sky and considered the fire giants their neighbours. So we can see that early astrologers lived on the mountaintops of the giants and lived peacefully alongside these fire giants. It belays a sort of primitive stage of the astrologer community As of course it would make sense to early researchers, for those without advanced tools, to be as close to their subject as possible, meaning to be as close to the stars as possible. Indeed we do find traces of this old community up here, as we find astrological tools. It is from these early astrologers that Carrions would descend. We know from the stargazer heirloom that Renala herself was once an astrologer, and the robes of the preceptors make this connection clearer, as it says the following Glintstone sorcerers are the descendants of astrologers, a fact that the Carrions remain aware of, even if their fate has long been severed from the stars. We know that fate has been severed from the stars since Star Scourge Redan of course halted the movement of the stars, but of course it implies that the early study of astrology by astrologers also went hand-in-hand hand with reading Fate. Indeed, the flavour text for the astrologer class when you're choosing it reads the following. A scholar who reads Fate in the stars, heir to the school of glintstone sorcery. However, it seems for a while at least the Carrions carried on the legacy of these astrologers, that being reading the Fate in the stars, and it was something that obviously at one point governed the Carrions. And we can learn this from the telescope item description, Which reads as follows Astrology tool used by members of the Carrion royal family, a stolen part of a larger instrument. During the age of the Erd tree, Carrion astrology withered on the vine. The fate once writ in the night skies had been fettered by the Golden Order. Yet, despite this, clearly the preceptors carried on the traditions of astrologers. We can see from the preceptor's big hat that the movement of the stars was something important to them. And indeed Preceptor Selavus' main focus is on abusing fate within the stars to create puppets, so in a way he carries on that legacy. Yet returning to the description of the Preceptor's robe, the schools of glintstone sorcery also owe their genesis to the astrologers. And indeed we know the founding glintstone sorcery was in fact the work of an astrologer, something we learn from the founding Reign of Stars which reads as follows. The eldest primeval sorcery, said to have been discovered by an ancient astrologer, a sorcery of legendary status. Thought to be the founding glintstone sorcery, the glimpse of the primeval current that the astrologers saw became real, and the star's amber rained down upon this land. Now, if you want to learn more about the primeval current, I did do a video primarily on that. But long story short, primeval current is a metaphysical force that when connected with, one can connect to the abyss from where stars are born. So this astrologer in his study of the stars was able to found the school of glintstone sorcery, and therefore everything we have seen about the glintstone sorcerers being descendants of the astrologers makes sense. It is likely upon this founding glintstone sorcery being discovered that the schools and study of glintstone rather than just the study of the stars would become quite prevalent. With that in mind, the Astrologer Armour description makes more sense, it reads as follows. They read fate in the stars, and are said to be the heirs of the Glintstone Sorcerers. But alas, the night sky no longer cradles fate. This covers everything we have said, from the fact they used to once read fate, to the fact they are the ones that established Glintstone Sorcery. But the fact they are described as the heirs, shows that the cycle of sorcery has come full circle. Once the Glintstone Sorcerers were the heirs of the work of early ancient astrologers. So now are the new astrologers the heirs of the Glintstone Sorcerers. They are coming into an inheritance that their ancestors once sowed. And now with that said, let us move on to another interesting class, the Prophet. Now, the Prophet is a class that has great implications for the story as a whole, and is something I covered in my Giant's Lore video. But regardless, I assume no prior knowledge here, so let us start at the beginning with the prophet's robes, which read, Robe of exiled prophets who foretold misfortune, and were persecuted and driven from their homes as a result. These shackles around the neck, warn passersby not to lend an ear to their sermons. So these are outcasts, so bound and blindfolded as to mark them as someone heretical, so people do not listen to what they see. Their visions are apparently ones that the Greater Wells Church do not want to be heard. Luckily we can hear more about the particulars of this vision from the Catch Flame incantation. Interestingly this is an incantation that the Prophet starts with, suggesting that the Catch Flame is born when someone has the vision. The incantation reads as follows. Incantation originating from a sinister prophecy. The Flame of Ruin is anathema to the earth tree but Prophets sometimes glimpse it within the Faith all the same. Sadly, when this occurs, their sole reward is banishment. So by choosing this starting class, clearly, we fall within that category. We are someone who has glimpsed this prophecy and has been blindfolded and exiled as a result. The named prophecy is one actually that sees the earth Tree burning as a result of the Flame of Ruin. A prophecy expanded upon in the incantation, Flame's Deadly Sin, which reads as follows. Incantation originating from a deeply ominous prophecy. The prophet despaired, looking up at the Erd Tree, for soon the kindling would burst into flame, bringing ruin. The burning of the Erd Tree is the first cardinal sin. That is not the domain of mere men. So this is actually a massive bit of lore connected with the starting class is one of the most important and final events of the game that your character, the Prophet, has already foreseen, and it's obviously not an uncommon thing to happen given that it is prophets, plural. And indeed we can also assume that Corrin suffered a similar fate, though as we see from his robes, he bears this judgement steadfastly, for his robes read the following. Robe of Corrin the Cleric. Even after exile, Corin refused to recant his prophecies. And for this, he was blessed with the guidance of grace. Since then, the cartwheel draped on his neck served as a reminder that true guidance await those with iron wills. Those with unwavering faith. And so it seems as though Corin, seeing the burning of the tree, was not one to hold back from letting people know this, and he accepted his punishment and exile. And it seems as though he comes to the lands between to find answers to this riddle. He is a stalwart believer in the Erdtree. He does not want to see it burn, but he is afraid that the prophecies are true and he must act. This is why he seeks Goldmask, but is also why by the end of his journey he has recanted Goldmask, who he sees as a heretic, and he goes mad, finally seeing the Erdtree burning before his very eyes, something he has seen in prophecy. And that, in essence, is the Prophet. Someone who has seen the very end of the Age of the Erdtree and as such has been blinded, outcast and exiled. Now let us move on to one of the other classes, the hero class. So the quote for the hero from the selection screen of the classes is probably the most interesting flavoured text of all as it specifically gives you Kin, a badlands chieftain. Now let us not jump to conclusions but of course the main badlands chieftain that will come to mind is Hora Lu. He is actually introduced as Chieftain of the Badlands in the introductory cinematic, so after choosing this class for your first playthrough, you may very well make that connection. In addition, another hero archetype that we meet in-game is Nefeli Lu, who is also descended from Horalu. Indeed, we know that the hero is at very least an accomplished and respected warrior from the Badlands, for their headband reads, Headband reserved for the Badlands Bravest proof that the wearer has slaughtered countless foes. Following the example of their chieftain Horalu, the brave warriors of the Badlands shun excess adornment. And again it does say that their chieftain is Horalu, leading us closer and closer to the conclusion that the hero starting class is Horalu's kin, or is at least from his clan. While admittedly there could be other Badlands chiefs out there, Come on, who else really could the aforementioned be? There is only one mentioned in-game, and if you do have ties to them as the hero starting class, that is one hell of a legacy to uphold. Now let us move on to one of the more enigmatic classes, the prisoner class. Now the prisoner starting class is a bit of a mystery, but one that nonetheless gives plenty of interesting roleplay potential. So let us start with their most defining feature, the iron mask. And the description of it reads, Iron Mask forced on a prisoner convicted of an appalling crime. Thick, heavy and utterly stifling. A foul creation designed to torment the wearer, either slowly fermenting hatred within their heart, or a spiritual fervour that is near indistinguishable from it. So the Iron Mask is part of their sentence, a device of torture that is meant to have a psychological impact upon the wearer, either making them hate themselves, go mad, Or become converted. This type of torture is not actually unique to the prisoner's iron helm. The black dumplings that are forced on the Alban Oryx, especially prevalent in Rykard's dungeons, have a similar effect of driving them insane, as we can see from their item description which reads, Mask forced on a victim's head to lend torture an extra degree of cruelty. It magnifies one's fear and makes them acutely aware of all forms of pain. When the Black Dumpling goes on, the torturer no longer seeks answers, only to inflict suffering without hope or relief. So we can even see the language is pretty similar between these two devices of torture, meaning that it is a psychological torture implement. So this is obviously a cruel type of punishment, and in the case of the Albanoriks in Rykar's dungeons, we know that is very much unwarranted. But in regards to the Iron Mask of the prisoner, it does seem to be warranted. The punishment must fit the crime and the description of the prisoner's mask specifically mentions an appalling crime. What is so interesting is that the description of the prisoner class on the selection screen also gives a little bit of background saying that the prisoner once lived among the elite. So this is interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly it shows a kind of fall of grace, someone who once lived among the elite using their elite position to commit an appalling crime now being reduced to an iron-mask-wearing criminal. I also find it interesting because the prisoner class is one who has access to glintstone sorceries, and to me it implies this sort of link between affluence and sorcery, something also implied by demon souls with the starting class royalty, another upper class that has access to these spells. And given the isolationist culture and kind of upper class intellectual culture of Realicaria. It does make sense that those with means and resource would be those most likely to have access to this school and i think it just gives us a nice little cultural commentary on a class system within elden ring however it could also just be implying some links to the carrion royalty but that would honestly just be wild speculation but nonetheless i can't deny it is a logical one given the connections to hierarchy and sorcery however the ties to nobility are interesting for another reason because I see it tying up with two outside sources, the so-called Man in the Iron Mask and Griffith from the manga Berserk. The Man in the Iron Mask was apparently a prisoner in the country of France, imprisoned for 30 plus years during Louis the Great's reign in the late 17th century. Witnesses testified to the fact they had encountered a prisoner in the jails who had his face completely occluded by an iron mask Years since historians have speculated that this man was a relation of the king himself, imprisoned for political reasons, and his face was hidden, so that he would fade into obscurity. Ultimately, we do not know the truth of it, but this is one of the main current theories. So I think the ties of nobility is something that could very much harken back to the man in the iron mask. Though I think Bogart's mask, another iron mask forced on prisoners, is more akin to the descriptions we see of the man in the Iron Mask, but one can't help but remember the fact the prisoner is reputedly of noble origin, and having the Iron Mask seems to rob him of his identity. Griffith's Mask is one that is forced upon him during the story of Berserk. While Griffith is not a noble by birth, he does eventually become a Viscount, so the connection is still there. And when it comes to aesthetic qualities, it's hard to deny that Griffith's Mask is more similar than the prior example I just gave. Ultimately Griffith's initial crime isn't huge, he is accused of seducing a king's daughter. So this might not be the appalling crime committed by the prisoner as described by their flavoured text, however it could just be a jumped up crime and they have been imprisoned for political reasons, both like Griffith and like the man in the iron mask. However there is also one other thing of Griffith's story that is interesting in regards to the prisoner class, one can't help remember the rift that Griffith enters to converse with demons under the eclipse after he has been freed from his incarceration by Guts. Then you cannot help and notice the rift shield that the prisoner holds, the description of which reads, small metal round shield depicting a sinister rift, an antiquated charm that glares back at an enemy. And indeed we can see the rift depicted on the front of the shield Yet there's no other mention at any other point in the game of a rift. Is it a possible hint as to the crime that the prisoner committed? Ultimately, I guess it is up to us to decide what the appalling crime of the prisoner is. And to me, the prisoner class is one of the most interesting and mysterious backstories for that very reason. And now, unfortunately, not all starting classes are equal and we get to the runts of the litter. So the Vagabond, the Bandit and the Wretch are unfortunately the weakest in my opinion when it comes to backstory and also happen to be my least favourite classes to choose, probably for the lack of surrounding lore. However, this might be better for some people because they have blank canvases for people to make their own stories. This is just my opinion, of course. The Bandit is simply just a bandit as we learn from their outfit and equipment and is more like a generic soul starting class from Dark Souls with very little lore associated, to be mined from their starting gear. This is similar to the Wretch, although what are you really expecting from a Wretch, this is the ultimate blank canvas. The Vagabond class does appear to have the most interesting lore out of this remaining trio however. According to the Vagabond set, they are in essence a knight of a once probably noble house that has been forced to leave for whatever reason, as the armour set reads the following chess piece of a knight banished from their motherland, dirty and battered after enduring a lengthy vagabond journey. The crest emblazoned on the front is worn and dingy, no longer able to evoke sentiment. So this is the most interesting out of these three because it is a blank canvas but one has a solid canvas. They have a motherland so you can choose one of the other lands that are mentioned in game or make up your own. They also once had a crest of some kind that has been worn off, meaning you have the ability to say it's whatever crest you wanted it to be. It could have been Rycards, it could have been Redan's, it could have been another noble house from outwith the lands between. So in that respect, it is pretty good from a roleplay perspective. They are very similar to the Banished Knights, knights who came from a solid background of training and discipline, but are now essentially free agents and can do what they want. There's also the fact they are vagabonds and they've endured a long, lengthy journey, so in your mind you can make up what adventures they went on and what journey they've made to come to this point, and so from that perspective it is far more interesting than the Bandit and Wretch class. But ultimately they are still a blank canvas and there just isn't much surrounding lore that tells us more about the Lands Between or the Tarnished themselves. And that's really all I've got to say about the final three classes. If you think I'm missing anything, I would love to hear more about these guys to get more of a kind of backstory, but I don't think there is anything else. And so there you have it, guys. A bit of a deep dive into the starting classes. Because I started thinking about this during my last couple of videos, and I think From Software did a far better job of actually fleshing out these classes. And I think it's something that can be forgotten, especially people that only play one playthrough. But there's actually a lot of lore to be had right at the beginning of the game if you just made every single class and read through all the item descriptions. So I felt this was a worthwhile video to make as it's something that not a lot of people will have considered and it gives us a nice foundation for the rest of the lore going forward. What I like most about it is that if you look at the classes to this degree, it gives a great wide view of the world of Elden Ring, the society, crime and punishment, different nations, religious practices and beliefs, and ultimately the horrifying acts that the people of this world inflict upon each other. It is an important kernel of lore and I'm really happy that you joined me today. If you liked this video guys please give it a like and consider subscribing for more Elden Ring lore. If you want to help the channel out in different ways I do have a Patreon and channel memberships. But until next time guys just leave me a comment below on what next subject you want me to cover. I'll be going back to my long form content next but until then I will see you at the round table hold. Take care and have a nice day.